Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's essential like your breakfast. It will get you up and going, learn some things you didn't know. Yeah, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Give you energy like buck fast. And if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Yeah. Stand, yeah. Stand by me. Good evening, good afternoon, good day, good morning, whatever it is, wherever you are. Hope you're well. It is the Keith Walsh Podcast and it is... I'm late. I'm late for a very important date for putting up my podcast. I normally record the intro and the outro to the to this particular podcast on a Thursday evening at night when everyone's gone to bed. And for some reason yesterday I went for a walk with the dog, Charlie, who's sitting here beside me staring at a ball hoping I'll throw it. But I'm not going to. Uh, out onto the Curra, I listened to the Tommy and Hector podcast as I walked. Um, I noticed other walkers out looking for mushrooms and walking. It's the Curra, you know. It's that time of the year. And, uh, excuse me, while well, I take a drink of coffee. And I came home and I, I was kind of cold, so I just got up on the couch and sat there. Just sat there for the evening watching telly with my family. That was it. <laughs> then I woke up this morning, like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone in the bed. I sat up, bolt upright. Fuck! I forgot to put up the podcast. But you know, luckily nobody really cares. As in, you know, I'm not. It's not like, a, but you know, it's not life or death. And you know, so I apologize if you're waiting for it. Um, and I don't know how long I can keep up this momentum of putting out three podcasts a week but here we are now it's friday it's friday the 23rd of october uh we're in one week week one of lockdown and uh yeah i'm only putting up the what is normally the thursday night podcast today there you go you don't care if you're listening to this in five months time or a year's time you don't care charlie i'm not throwing the ball to you okay i throw it once I'll throw it once and that's it then I'll try that. He's gone down the stairs. I think he's okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, weird lunch just now. I had to do some work, so I was as I was driving past, I pulled into one of those convenience. What am I? One of those. I pulled into a petrol station and got some chips. Uh, chips are my weakness. I got some chips, and then I came home and had a banana and some medjool dates. That's what I've eaten so far today at 20 to 2. I don't know what's going on with my diet. Who knows? Um, anyway, I don't want to really uh, waffle on too much. I want to crack on with this one because it's a good one. And uh, it is a chat with Marco Halloran. Why did I say Marco Halloran? Marco Halloran. He is an Irish scriptwriter and actor. 
in native of Ennis in the beautiful County Clare. That's where podcast Mike is from, my friend Mike. He's not from there, that's where he lives. And it's not Ennis, he's not from Ennis, he lives in County Clare. That's why I got excited. Um, he has written award-winning screenplays for the films Adam and Paul, Garage, Prosperity. Uh, he starred in uh, The Virtues with Stephen Graham, 2019. Uh, sorry, written and directed by Shane Meadows. Wow. So Shane Meadows directed um, and uh, Mark starred in it alongside Stephen Graham. Brilliant series. If you haven't seen The Virtues, you should you should watch that. I presume you could watch it somewhere like Channel 4. Um, and I was very lucky to get Mark when I did because I was working with Janet Moore. So thank you very much, Janet. And she was talking about um, a friend of hers who had passed on and I recognize the name and anyway so mark the name mark came up in the conversation subsequently and i said oh i'd love to get him on the podcast and she said well will i text him and see and i said well that'd be amazing that'd be brilliant thank you very much and she did and he agreed to come on i think mostly because he likes janet and i don't think he really knew who i was so it was just like i'd been thinking in the days leading up to that chat with janet how would i get mark because i follow him on twitter and I was thinking, I'll have to go through his agent or something. And it was a big rigmarole. And then I just mentioned it to Janet. And she got him on for me. So I was delighted. And subsequently, uh, just before our chat, he won two IFTAs. Not just any old IFTAs. He won one for acting for his role in The Virtues. So he's an actor as well. I may have mentioned that. And uh, he won the other one for writing. So he wrote a movie called uh, Rialto, and uh, it's based on a, a play he wrote called Trade. Um, and that was the main reason I wanted to talk to him because uh, I watched Rialto. And if you'd like to watch Rialto, maybe you could take a moment to watch, or take an hour and a bit to watch that before you listen to the chat. It is available. All you have to do is go to the IFI website. There's an IFI home there, and you can download. You can rent it for a tenner. Nine ninety nine to be precise, and you can watch it. Um, I was going to I was going to tell you how you can watch it on your iPad, on your stick it up in the telly. Uh, but I would re- I would highly recommend you watch Rialto. It's brilliant, um, and Mark is a brilliant writer. He's also a brilliant actor, um, and I'm a big fan of Adam and Paul. So we got to talk about that. Obviously, we talked a lot about Rialto, and we talked about this the subject matter of Rialto because it's about a man who finds himself. Uh, a bit lost his father dies and um, he loses a job and he's roughly the same age as me so watching it for me was a bit rough because I was like oh Jesus there's too many similarities here Uh, it's a tough watch but it's a worthwhile watch definitely Uh, so go and get that from the IFI if you please and then you can listen to the chat or just listen to the chat either way Uh, and listening to the chat might might make you want to Watch, want to watch it so we talked about that we talked about Adam and Paul a little bit about Garage uh, about men about life about about gay men a little bit about how their lives might differ from straight men and how they might be similar um, and we talked about uh, his friend Tom Murphy who he starred with in alongside in Adam and Paul who unfortunately passed away a few years ago and uh, he was they were very good friends and lovers at one point point. Um, and it was nice to get to talk 
to hear Mark talk about him so fondly. That's it. Uh, in 2005, he won um, the International Film Festival Award, the Gijon International Film Festival Award for Best Actor for Adam and Paul. 2006, Evening Standard British Award for Best Screenplay, Adam and Paul. 2008, Irish Film and Television. That's the, his, the IFTA, possibly his first IFTA, for Garage. Uh, great film as well. You should you should watch if you haven't seen it. I don't know where you'd see it at this stage. Um, but it stars Pat Short in not how you'd normally see Pat Short. Uh, 2008, Anifta for Best Script for Television, Prosperity. And uh, 2008, Irish Playwrights and Screenwriters Guild Award for Best Television Script, Prosperity. And he was nominated for lots of uh, awards as well. I would give him all the awards. Actually, Lenny Ebra, um, Lenny Abramson uh, directed Adam and Paul, just FYI. Interesting. Interesting sidebar note. Anyway, that's it. I had intended to keep this intro short, but I'm now nearly 10 minutes into it, and it's time for me to shut the up. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy episode, I think it's 16. Is it 16? Charlie, is it episode 16? He's just looking at the ball. Of the Keith Walsh podcast. Uh, thank you very, for, very much for listening to it. And today's guest is the brilliant, and I'm delighted to say, he's today's guest, Mark O'Halloran. Enjoy. Hey, how are you? Can you hear me? I sure can. Good man. Thank you very much. First of all, it. first of all, thank you very much. Uh, are you are you are you in Dublin? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Rialto actually. So, okay. Uh, getting ready for lockdown. Are you? You're obviously still celebrating your wins. Yeah. <laughs> There's no real way to celebrate these days, but it was delightful on on Sunday to to, to win. You know, um, to be you know, it's it's voted on by your peers and all of that. So there is that kind of um, that's kind of nice. Um. Yeah, it was brilliant. Uh, we'll just we'll just start. I'm I'm just going to make yeah. sure I'm recording here, uh, and it's not. I'm just using the audio, so it's not going to sure. be. So you can, if you need to pick your nose or, uh, you know, just walk away for a while. That's fine. You know, don't worry about it. My cat is is making an appearance there. Actually, just some, see her. Somebody said to me when you got your award because <laughs> I, I I was I was watching it the other night, and then somebody said to me, "Did you see when Marco Halloran got his award?" And he had a lovely. Hit the background to where his camera was, you know, his his place of work or whatever, it was so nice, you know. And <laughs> he said, but it, it looked so casual. And then he was like, well, maybe it was carefully curated. Like he got <laughs> he got someone. It to- isn't carefully curated, but I was suddenly aware that I had the posters of of my movies were up and all of that. But uh, if you could actually see the floor space, there's there's nothing carefully curated about it. It's all a jumble. But also, you had. Um, you had posters yet to be hung, uh, framed and yet to be hung, sort of leaning against the wall, which is a feature you see in some shops, you know, that's kind of a cool thing, you know, so. Kind of a thing. I just run out of wall space, actually, which is the worst of it all. I have no place to put them up. Um, I, I tell you what, now, you have me in a bit of a, I, I haven't been, the, I haven't really recovered from watching Rialto. So let's just get let's get straight into that. And I will tell people in the intro, I'll do a separate intro that you can uh, watch Royalty. You can rent it from the IFI mm-hmm. at the moment. You can watch it at home. It's absolutely brilliant. I cannot recommend it enough. Now, I will say it's a tough watch. Mm-hmm. And I am, let me just put it into context for you. I'm a 47-year-old man. 
mm-hmm. up until very recently, I was presenting the breakfast show on 2FM. So I kind of lost my job mm-hmm. about a year ago. Yeah. And I went mm-hmm. through this thing where I went to therapy and I sort of, you know, I, I was like, now I didn't do what Tom Vaughn Lawler, what, what Tom Vaughn Lawler's character in Rialto did. I didn't, I didn't get involved in what he got involved in. I didn't hit, mm-hmm. the, I didn't hit the cans and I didn't seek out uh, any rent boys, but but I, I really, it really hit me. Like I really felt, I felt for him. I could see him. I, I was him, you know, mm-hmm. um, where did, I mean, where did, I know, I know the, it's from a trade from the, the, the play. Trade. Yeah. So it started its life as a, as a, as a, as a play, which was done in a site specific work. There were a couple of themes in it that I was really interested in working in, working through and thinking about. One is transactional sex, sex for, for money and what, moral questions arise from that transaction you know who's in charge who's not in charge who's been exploited who's not been exploited and can can it be a moral decision or a moral choice and uh, and then i was interested in a man who's who loses his identity completely um and part of the way of doing that was for him to lose his job it, it, and that was something that he identified himself completely through um, and i think that's a familiar thing for a lot of a lot of men and women, but also he lost his father in the month before that. And that's probably the more, uh, the, the, the larger problem for him. He was, he was raised in a house with a man who was incredibly dominant and domineering and, and he almost acted out a version of himself for his father. He pretended to be somebody for his father. And, uh, and when his father died, that facade fell away and he was nobody he could that he could recognize and so in that time space in that month around the father dying his losing his job he he meets a rent boy now he's never had gay sex before and even i wouldn't even define him as being a homosexual man you know he's married he has children um this is something that he's never done before but in the space that he finds himself with this boy there's an honesty or he feels there's an honesty even though this it is transactional that opens up troubling things for him and and he then through the selfishness of his own loneliness he he pretty much destroys his family or tears it apart so yeah, it's it's a it's a light romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's harrowing. It's harrowing. Like and and I feel like I think you mentioned in an interview that because his wife is the person. I mean, there's so many people to feel for his son. Uh, his daughter seems to have a pretty good handle on things. Um, his but his wife, you really because she's. You know, I think you said if he only kind of looked around, he has the support network there. He has the person he needs to to be honest with if he needed to like he probably could have mm. been really honest with her like it might have like fucked up things for a little while but like they could have been you know he could have trusted in her I think yeah I mean I, when I was writing her I didn't want to go down the usual route whereas this person has grown away for him, from him or has become more functional or doesn't love him for instance or is hard on him I wanted her to be a person who could, he could, if he could reach out. A part of the reason he can't reach out is that he despises himself so much. He hates himself so much that the idea of somebody loving him is impossible for him to understand. So what he does is he, he allows a space to open up with this 
complete stranger, this boy who's a complete stranger, and he invests in this and he thinks this is love. And, and the reason he thinks it's love is that that boy knows nothing about him, doesn't know him. And so he thinks that can be love. But actually, the love that he has with his wife is much more profound. But he can't see it. He can't recognize it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I presume for some people watching that, uh, the, the gay sex part of it would be like a massive part. Of, you know, like there's a married man having sex with someone he just met and he's paying for it. No, that would be a massive part of it. Would you say for you, that's kind of almost like, I mean, obviously it's a big part of the story, but it's almost incidental kind of that's not because we all have ways of acting out. Mm, mm. Well, I mean, I don't think like, for instance, people say, oh, it's a story of a repressed gay man. But actually the problem, you know, if he, if the only problem he had was that he hadn't come out and then he came out and he'd be happy, that's not what would happen. If he came out of the closet, he'd be even more lost than he was because he's not particularly he's not particularly gay. <laughs> but what. I did, I was interested in the sex and what, what function the sex played within it. So there are sex scenes within it that are, that are, that have a, I think a, a direct bearing on the psychological profile of, of him. Um, he, I think that the, the sex part, it, it takes over his brain and allows him a moment of calmness. Like, I think that sex and sex drive comes from a more primitive part of the brain. So when when you're when you're being driven by that, worries feel as if they've fallen away from you. So you're just thinking about it's, it's, it's why people become addicted, I suppose, to watching pornography, because the, the rest of their life falls away and some primitive part of their brain pops up for a minute and pops up for a minute. Um, <laughs> you can cut that out of the podcast if you want. <laughs> that wasn't what I meant. But um, but that that. He, he, he thinks then that that's delicious and that he wants that, um, you know, himself and his wife haven't had a sexual relationship for a number of years. And um, I felt very sorry for him when I was writing it, you know, and I felt very sorry that I feel in a way that sometimes men, and I include myself in this, get ourselves into those spaces. We accidentally back ourselves into a corner and refuse to step out of it. Yeah, I think there's one thing that I learned through therapy was was vulnerability. But the difficulty with vulnerability is when you start when you start being honest with the people around you and behaving in an honest <laughs> way, it can be uncomfortable for everybody else. So you're being vulnerable and saying, you know, well, this is actually how I feel and this is how I feel about this. And I'm being going to be honest here and, you know, and, and things change and things shift. And you start seeing things a little bit differently, but it, it, you, you also make the person that you love or the person that you live with, uh, the people around you feel vulnerable, like they're exposed now because, mm. you know, because dad is, what, what that, dad's saying things he used to say, or now dad is actually saying, yeah, I'm actually worried about this as well. You know, I'm not saying, whereas I would have spent a lot of my time going, it'll be cool, everything be grand, whatever, and then kind of hiding everything, all my worries. Whereas now I go, yeah, I'm actually quite worried about that or having a cry or whatever. And that kind of freaks everybody else out. Yeah. But I, I think sometimes that crises like these do manifest themselves as rupture within relationships or, or mad shakeups because they have to shake up because 
you're in a pattern or a shape of things and you can't keep going. You can't keep going down that pattern because it's eating you or it's eating that person. And so you have to step back and go, look, I, I have to tell you what's happening here. And they're going, well, actually that they feel sometimes people in at the other side of that relationship can feel like, are you blaming me? Is that what you're doing? And, but it's not, you're not blaming them. You're just going, can we, can we together step away from this or something? And uh, I think that's what happens to him in the film. And he ruptures his family, though, himself deliberately and really violently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, as I said, it's, 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 it's a tough thing to watch. And you do feel sorry for him. And, and yeah, you just, you just wish. I'd love, so many men need to watch this film. So many men won't watch this film possibly because mm. of the content or some of the content, which is, which is upsetting. I, I hope any men listening to this, and I talk a lot about mental health and, and I talk a lot about men on this podcast. And I hope anybody listening to this, that, that would like to kind of have a think about what's going on in their own lives would, would watch this because it just, it is a lesson in not getting caught up and not spending your life, not, you know, not finding yourself 20 years down the road when the kids have gotten to a certain age and they don't need you anymore. And either you lose your job or you still have your job, but actually that money isn't that important anymore. Like the, the thing that you were in the household becomes null and void almost because mm. we're, we're actually okay. And we don't really need that money anymore. And the mortgage is paid off and yeah, cool. Right. You've got a job. That's great. But, but, and what, then what happens is, and, you know, there can be a catalyst like losing your job or it can just be like, like I, I like to, you know, in a wanky way, say, you know, it's not a midlife crisis, it's a midlife awakening because you go, oh shit, I spent the last 20 years making sure that the bills were paid, that the kids were okay, that, and now, and I forgot who I was. Mm. So, so what do I do for the next, you know, it's the man who wears the same outfit every day, kind of goes to the pub on a Friday drinks five points with these five lads, watches the match on Sunday. That's the routine. That's who I am. And if you, if you suddenly decide, well, I might not be that person, that can be really, that can be a weird place to be and a, diff and a dangerous place to be for a man. Well, I think that the character of Colin within the film says, uh, I want to be straight out. I want to be known. I don't want to die and be gone. And for people to be putting me together different afterwards. So that, that he'd have different people knowing different aspects of him, of him. And he also had witnessed his father and at his father's funeral, this woman who his father had had an affair with, an extended affair with throughout his life. And she sat in the church for his month's mind. And she, she was, you know, and he was aware that she had a certain part of his father and he had another certain part of his father and his wife, his mother had another part of his father and his workmates had other parts of his father, but his father wasn't whole. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a complete man. He couldn't conjure his father complete in his mind. And he was, he is, you know, in the film, he's afraid that that's what's going to happen to him, that he'll go. And that this strange rent boy in town will know more of him than his own son will know. And that terrifies him. And he feels that that's a failure on his part. He's, it's a failure of his parenting. It's a failure of, of, of him as a person, you know? And it, yeah. it is a frightening thing, you know? That's why it's an uncomfortable watch, but, it, but, but that's why it's brilliant. And, you know, as I said, like anybody listening should go and watch it, male, female. If you're wondering, if you're wondering what's going on with the man in your life, that might answer some questions. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the rent boy stuff, I'm sure. Uh, but you never know. Um, and he, like Garage was a, is a favorite of mine as well. 
and you, you like you're exploring those themes there, like themes of loneliness. And that's the other thing that was really interesting was his loneliness within, you know, uh, you really get to the nub of how you can be lonely within a relation, you know, in a family, within a household, within a household, you know, that's, that's fascinating. Well, I think that's, you know, I have this theory that in, you know, speaking in generalities that men can tend to suffer loneliness in a different way than women do. That's not to say that women don't suffer loneliness, but I think it's in a different way. Men have a tendency to isolate themselves or they have a tendency to, as I said, back themselves into a corner or they tend not to reach out to people and say, I actually, I'm in real trouble here. I'm in real trouble, I'm in pain and I'm in real trouble. They tend not to have that because it shows a vulnerability which they've been told for ages that they shouldn't express because it's weakness or you know it, it is incompatible with masculinity in some way. And I think that that's, I've always liked exploring that in the work that I've done. But also, I also think that there is this thing that, that Paul Durkin, I mentioned the phrase earlier on that Paul Durkin had said, which is called the selfishness of loneliness. So loneliness, in itself has a feedback in it. it. It tends to make you isolate yourself more because you go into these, you, you can sometimes go into a place with other people, but all you have is your loneliness to offer. And all you have is, all you want to talk about is your loneliness and people don't want to be around you. And so, so there's a tendency for people to drift away as well. Um, um, and, and it's because your own pain, sometimes it gets to a point where you can't get beyond it. You can't leap over it and talk to other people, but it's there. It becomes this edifice that, that you place before you in the world. And I think you do see that with some men, you know, suddenly, not suddenly, but over time, they they lose touch with their friends or they, you know, they can be lonely within their own house. And then apart from maybe work colleagues that they don't really talk to, they don't really have any friends unless it's the pub and they don't want to go to the pub anymore because, you know, all they talk about in the pub is politics and sport. And, you know, you see it like we repeat me, I'm included, but we repeat these. I mean, I don't want to get too dark, but I read the story of a man. Uh, I, I come from a town in the Midlands and I read the story of a man who he seemed to be quite a, an, a, a, a on the surface, an, an upstanding member of the community, but he ended up killing a young a, a girl, you know, Wow. And he was meeting this girl and paying her for sex, you know, but mm. but on the surface, he was he was a married man. And you could see I could see, you know, I really it really affected me because I could see how that could happen. I'm not saying that everybody could kill. But as you said, he really backed himself into a corner and he was such a man. Or he was he couldn't at any point, you know, way back before he started meeting that girl or, you know, however he got into that situation, that that's the only, that was the only solution he could see. Mm. Um, and that was kind of when I watched Rialto, I, I thought of that man as well, because we do that. You're right. We do it to ourselves all the time. And you see it over and over again. We, is it, is it the fault of, is it the fault of the generation before us, the men before us? Is, is it our fault? Is it society? What do we do about it? Where do we go with it? How do we change it? And how do we make it better for the next? I'm not saying that you've got all the answers, but what do you think? How do we make it well, better I mean, for the next you know, generation? Like, you, you, you watch, I mean, I don't want to use the phrase, but I will mention it with the toxic masculinity. So, so we won't ever mention that phrase ever again because it tends to trigger people. But uh, I think for ages there was this thing where masculinity was defined as being unfeeling, unemotional, 
physically strong um, um, and and it didn't allow a place for nurture for vulnerability for all of those things that that would make you complete it almost I always felt it was a half a definition of masculinity and not a complete definition of masculinity and uh, and now you know we're now kind of saying that that uh, strength and all of those things you know we, we've got to break them or I, I don't know really to be honest with you but I do see that the people of my father's generation or whatever weren't allowed to be nurturers nurturers of their children or weren't allowed and I think that robbed them you know that's why men sat in the pub because they did felt they didn't have a function within the home or um and that it was very sad and I hope we're breaking it you know I hope we're we're remaking it um I always think that, that, you know, this will also sound controversial, but I think that feminism has lots to give to men, you know. Um, it can be a liberation for us as well, you know. If we just allow ourselves not to be in charge and not to be responsible for everything, is, or, or, or I don't mean we're actually in charge, but to think that we need to be in charge of everything and to make all the decisions and to sort of let go a little bit and go, yeah, we'd love some help here or whatever it is. I'm not but, saying you know, like, they I haven't there helped. Are some men who are naturally great leaders. There are some women who are naturally great leaders. They shouldn't feel bad about that. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. There are some who aren't naturally great. I'm not a, I'm not a natural leader. I, I never was. But I really, you know, I like doing what I do, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I am a kind of a, I, I would be more emotional than my dad would. I can be quite effeminate at times. I really enjoy that. It doesn't bother me anymore. But it took time to get used to that. And to accept that within myself, that, that, you know, there was that thing, there was that thing, we used to have these tests, you know, when we were in, in primary school, you know, or secondary school, they'd go, look at your, look at your fingernails. And if you looked at your fingernails straight on, it meant you were gay. And if you did that, it meant you were straight. And I always remember at school going, oh, fuck me, I've got to police myself now in case I give myself away. And suddenly masculinity became this act that I was trying desperately to do and failing terribly badly at. But like, it became, it became quite oppressive. Because uh, suddenly, be, you, suddenly you, were, you, you said, oh shit, there's telltale signs. There's ways that people can find signs. out. I, I, got to, I, got to, I got to rein in my arms. I've got to not tilt my head to the side. I've got to, I've got to you know, bear down on myself. I've got to, you know, walk in a certain way. I've got to, you know, and I, it didn't feel natural to me. Like it's, it really, it really didn't. Now, at the same time, I feel really comfortable as a man. You know, I am a man. I, I'm very comfortable with my masculinity. Um, it's not everybody's idea of masculinity, but <laughs> fuck it, I don't care. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think, I think maybe thankfully we're getting to a point where uh, we, and maybe it's good that we're confused that we're not sure exactly what masculinity means anymore. And that means we're thinking about it, you know, at least, at least it's a start. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, and also to give ourselves a break, you know, I think men are great, you know, but, but, but we need to be, you know, like if you look at the suicide figures or blah, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's, it's overwhelmingly men who do that. And I, I, I think that we need to just check in and see why that's happening especially with younger men, you know? And is it a, would this be a problem? I don't know if this is a, a good question or not. Would this issue be a problem within uh, a, a gay couple um, 
would you find similar situations or scenarios with like because because the belief is that this is about you know this is this film Rialto is somehow about you know the, the the gay sex or the rent boy or whatever that he that he that he that he does this thing like are men as likely within a, a gay couple or you know the belief would be that that you know if you're if you're gay you're a lot more honest and you're a lot more vulnerable and you're a lot more you know whatever is could could that story be told and is it being told and is it being is, is there similar scenarios happening within gay couples where one of them isn't being honest with the other and is acting out and, and all that kind of stuff or is it, is it do you absolutely. do you know yeah absolutely for sure you know you know gay men can be lying cheating bastards as well you know um, but i think that the possibly gay men have had to go through a process of thinking about their masculinity or thinking about what that means in their lives that straight men have not had to do, you know what I mean? And so they get to, I think that sometimes, I think that maybe gay men have a midlife crisis earlier. <laughs> a quarter life crisis. Yeah, but then, you know, they can have it in their late teens where they suddenly have to go, look, I've got to justify myself. I have to tell you who I am. I've got to say what this means to my life. I've got to find love that I didn't think I was going to find. You see a lot of younger gay men, I'm, you know, I, I'll only talk about gay men and this is not gay women, obviously, but where gay men, for the early parts of their going out, it's about sex, it's about finding sex and blah, 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 because they've been conditioned to maybe think badly about themselves and blah, blah, blah. So forming relationships is more difficult. So sometimes they live out a, a kind of a, a teenage years for a little bit longer than, than straight men might do. Straight men tend to, you know, they'd be going out with and might get married or, or settle down earlier or blah, blah, blah. And then gay men or straight men might then tend to have a later midlife crisis or something but it's ultimately the same thing i think that the idea that we have to game in uh, certainly I'm, I'm talking also of my generation because i don't know what the, what it's like for for gay men of, of a younger generation but for my generation there was a really if you came out it meant that you had been thinking about yourself and your life for a long time you had to rearrange your your family relationships, you had to be terribly honest with them and go, look, I'm willing to walk away from the family if you can't support me, you know? I'm willing to, this is who I am. So there was that that thing that you were talking about in your, in your um, when you're talking about um, uh, therapy, that yeah. you, had, you had to rearrange your relationships. And sometimes it meant a couple of months of really rough times for, for people some men were told not to come home for a while or blah 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 but they also then you know you 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 find love for the first time in those times as well and you realize that actually i can live in my the family that i make if the family that i come from isn't isn't going to be supportive so th there has been i think there was a lot of searching and thinking and and working things out um and bringing things to a head with with parents, for instance, a lot of therapy can be about that, um, and a lot of gay men who do come out early, you know, early on in their in their lives have done work on that. Mm, okay, and your own personal experience, because like what you write about with Garage and with Trade and with ultimately Rialto and. Uh, mm. Does that come from a personal experience growing up in Ennis, or was that is is that um, are you imagining scenarios that fit some a story you want to tell? Like which which way did you come at it? Did you did you experience? Did you look at did you look at men that were older than you as growing up and and see the loneliness? Or do you know what I'm trying to say? 
I noticed, especially with Garage, Garage kind of came from a sort of set of stories that had actually happened in Ennis when I was growing up. But, you know, I'd, I'd often, we'd often, my dad would bring us down for our holidays down around Carrigavolt and Kilbaha in, in West Clare, down near Loophead or even Milton Malbay, Spanish Point. And we'd, we'd be in a caravan there for the whole summer and you'd see men in the countryside. You'd often see them living in, in falling down houses. The bachelor men uh, who'd have a small, you know, where they, where, where they might have a few cattle or they might blah, blah, blah. And they'd go and, 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 and have their drinks in the evening. And as you'd see a lot of that. Whereas the women would be around the local shop chatting to each other or talking to each other or, um, you know, you could often go into a bar as well and the men wouldn't be talking to each other. They'd be sitting quietly at the bar and then walking home in the evening or getting on their bike in the evening. And I really, you know, I found I, I was that was very prevalent. That was very prevalent. There's been sociolo sociological studies about the the bachelor farmers and the and, and the men, the loneliness of men in the countryside. So that was all in play for 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 Garage. With um, with with Rialto, Rialto, as I said, you know, the play uh, trade came from. There was an evening I, I went on this site-specific piece of theatre work that involved driving around a van in a in a van in in Dublin by this company called uh, Rimini Protocol. They they do brilliant work, and part of it was it was trying to show you the experience of what it was like to be a long haul driver driving from Bulgaria to Dublin, and part of it was they drove you around the docklands, and we we went in on the truck. Uh, to, a, to a, a packing container yard. And there was a voiceover of a man who worked in the packing container yard. And he basically talked about, he started life here at the age of 16. I love it, it's a brilliant job. It's a blah, blah, blah. I, I get this, I do this in the morning and I get the, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't imagine life without working here and blah, blah. And that's where the idea of trade came from. He seemed very low energy. And yet he defined himself so completely by this yard that I looked around and I thought it was both ugly and beautiful at the same time. And, uh, and the character just kind of popped up into my head uh, um, of Callum in the film. And I extrapolated from there. Yeah, well, you extrapolated very well. <laughs> Even though I'm still, I'm still reeling from it in a way. Yeah, like it's, it's uh, yeah. It's well, I think it's a good thing sometimes to to look at these things. I, I think that the film is, is, is a tough watch. Um, it's helped by brilliant acting and, uh, and the visuals are very good on it. And, uh, but I do think it's worth looking at men in a crisis like this. Yeah, I think, and, it's, a, I think it's well, I think it's good a good time for a film like that. And that's why, you know, I really hope that lots of people get to see it. And uh, mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to talk to you just to get the word out there and get people, Go go to the IFI and download and watch it. Um, if if you don't want to tell anybody you're watching, watch it on your iPad. I don't <laughs> I don't want you keeping secrets from your family, but uh, <laughs> it may be necessary. You don't have to be that honest all the time. Um, so so can I talk to you then about uh, one of my favorite films? Another one of my favorite films from you is um, Adam and Paul. Yeah. Uh, it's I love Adam. I. I I don't know. It's just it's a great film. Uh, and another two kind of broken, broken men, uh, mm -hmm. product of their of their upbringing and their and and, you know, where they came from and all that. Uh, and just completely lost two lost characters, uh, almost like waiting for Gatto in some respects sometimes. Uh, but um, it's just a brilliant film. So it was that. 
I used to work on a radio show years ago uh, on spin when I was young and we had two characters. We called them the boardwalk lads. Mm. <laughs> and they were very, it was just, I mean, it, there were the two lads that would try and, you know, get across. They were always in a hurry, you know, but, we don't know where they were going, but they were always like yeah. they had, like they were always shouting at each other to come on. It was always like, "Will you come on?" And you're just like, "Where are you going? Like, what is the rush?" You know, and just not obeying, you know, never crossing the road at the right places, and all those, you know, they they just kind of lived alongside life. Do you do, do you get mm. what I'm saying? Like they just kind of there was a parallel universe. We were all we were all in our cars going to work, doing our thing. They were like cutting out in front of you in the traffic shouting at each other didn't really weren't really aware of what was going on around them which part of me was like what, what a wonderful and I'm, god no it's not a wonderful place to be but they were so lost in their own world and and mm. uh, it, that film really kind of uh, uh hit home with me as well just that you know that these lads you know you could find yourself in this place and uh you know kind of hanging out with your best friend in, in one way but it was, it was, yeah, I mean, the, 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 for me, I agree with you about the them living in a parallel world. Um, when I first came to Dublin, I moved to Parnell Street. I went to drama school and uh, I was living on Parnell Street. And at the time, it was the early 90s and Parnell Street was you know, pretty, pretty sketchy at times. And uh, there was a lot of derelict buildings. There was a lot of, you know, half or maybe well over a half of, of Mount Joy Square was, was, had fallen down. Basically the buildings were in bits. Um, it was a very different landscape. Gardner Street was also, it was like as if, I don't know, it had been bombed. Um, and I had never seen heroin addicts in an Irish context before. So I'd never seen them on the streets of Ennis, for instance. But uh, I arrived and it felt to me as if there was this, what I called a ghost dance going on around. There were lots of young men and young women who were moving really slowly, talking in a little baby voice. I saw a boy fall over in slow motion on, on O'Connell Street. I saw two adult women fighting over a chalk ice like just strange, strange things. Uh, and uh, and I began to take diaries about things that I'd seen because I thought that there was something both comedic in it, but also kind of tragic in it. Um, and I, you know, when I, I, I wrote a couple of plays and one of the plays was seen by Johnny Spears, who was, uh, who, was who produced Adam and Paul and he, contacted me and said would you like to come in and meet this director that I have on my books who makes ads with me and it was Lenny Abramson and I had sent them through a few little scenelets that I had written and uh, and Lenny really responded really well to them and they asked me to write a screenplay a day in the life Adam and Paul you never find out which is which it goes from sunrise to sunrise and that's it and it, they just wander around the town basically and part of that was influenced by Waiting for Godot of course but also Laurel and Hardy movies um, and the one thing that I did learn from it, you know, you mentioned the boys on the boardwalk, was that being homeless is, is a very busy life because everything is a struggle. 
you can't find a place to shit. You have to find food. You need to get money. You go from shelter to shelter. You're trying to find a place for your bits and pieces, your clothes. You're trying to keep clean. You're moved on by the police after. So it's go, 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 trying to find a safe place to put down your head. And if you're addicted on top of that, you need to get alcohol. You need to get drugs. You need to check in with your family and with your, with your wider uh, circle of friends. It's kind of chaotic. I mean, it's not kind of chaotic. It is chaotic. And we wanted to show that as well. Um, and then there was, there was the thing about the whole naming thing, not being able to name who is Adam and who is Paul. It was a deliberate thing in that I, I liked the idea of, at the end of the film, the audience going, which one was which? Which was Adam and which one was Paul? Because nobody ever goes down the street and says, I wonder what that heroin addict in the street corner is called. The idea that they were struggling to name people that they'd happily call the junkie or the knacker, to use a, the K word, or, you know, that they were struggling to actually give the dignity of a name to was kind of one of the things that I wanted to do. And then also myself and Lenny wanted to make it funny. Um, it, it's on an edge, you know, <laughs> it's funny. It's it's funny. Ha ha. Oh, my God. Um, oh, some really so, funny moments in it. It's like it's 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 great. It's it's you know, <laughs> you know it's a road movie. It's a romp, um, but it's so tragic, you know. And that's why it's you know because we're laughing, but we we, we, mm. we you know you get you, you laugh with them and then you cry with them, and that's the but. but and it, uh, it actually, I, enough, it took deeper engagement with them than the just the standoff uh, and uh, and observation. So Lenny and I had great meetings with this company or this organization called Raid, which is recovery through art, drama, and education, and they deal with uh, users and ex-users and sometimes with homeless users, and they offer them a space where they can do things like write poetry or paint or find creativity, and then they can hook them up with, with the health services and blah, blah, blah. So you get to see real people talk about their real struggles and blah, blah, blah. So we, we interacted with them quite a lot, and that was quite telling, you know, and we got them to read the script for us, and, uh, and they're before we made it. So they're their suggestions to us were quite were quite interesting actually we did a reading one day and uh, there was a scene early on where the two lads were walking through waste ground and they were pushing a trolley that had a, a microwave uh, in it no they, they, sorry they were walking through the wasteland and there were these two young women who had a trolley with a microwave in it that they just picked up and were bringing home and they passed by adam paul and said all right adam paul and then burst out laughing at him and they were like 11 year old girls or something like that and I wanted to show just this small scene of them being humiliated by little girls, you know, and um, and we just passed by that scene. And one of the one of the the the, the clients of the of Raid put up his hand and said, "Excuse me, why didn't they take the microwave?" And I was like, "Yeah, okay, Julie noted. Yeah, got that, got that. Write that down." We went on a few more pages, blah blah blah, and then he put up his hand again. He said, "Excuse me." They should have taken that microwave. And I was going, gotcha, the microwave is gone. No possibility that we're going to do the microwave. And then we went all the way to the end of the film. My character dies, uh, blah, blah, blah. End of the film, closed over the page. And he put up his hand and he said, if they'd taken the microwave, none of this would have happened. <laughs> and I actually realized that actually it was the most brilliant piece of script analysis and script editorship that I'd ever gone through. He found the hole in my script. <laughs> And he went, you're wrong. You're completely <laughs> wrong. Um, but there was also, it was a great adventure making that film. You know, we, we, you know, Lenny had never made a film before. I had never made a film before. I'd never written a screenplay before. 
I'd never really acted in film before. And suddenly, and, and, I, and we made it with a type of honesty, you know, we didn't kind of think, oh, this is going to be a huge hit. And we're going to be, you know, we thought some people might see it and it might, you know, it might get released to the cinema, blah, blah, blah. But it actually ended up being really popular. Uh, and it still is kind of culty popular to this day. People watch it. I still get recognized as being Adam and Paul on the street. Are you Adam and Paul? <laughs> get asked. Um, especially if I'm looking really bad some days. They go, you're Adam and Paul, aren't you? Um, especially if you're looking for for change off people. Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, it's like it's it's one of those films that just has stuck with me. And I know friends of mine, we, we, we you know, whatever year it came out, we just, we would have watched it right together and uh, and it would have been a thing like a like a like Whitnell and I almost, you know, do you know, there's sure. moments, there's, there's, there's moments in it that people recall and, re- and, and. I'm not wiping myself with a take bag. All this good. <laughs> but, but it, it's, it's funny that you say that the busyness and the, 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 the stress of being, of living that life, because it just, it makes a mockery of the people. Nobody would choose that. Nobody would decide this is the life for me. You know, mm. uh, off I go to live near the boardwalk and, and you know, and nobody wants that. Like, so, as you said, it was like partly the great thing about Adam, Adam and Paul was that people, you know, were wondering about what their names were, which we don't normally. We, we mm. call them junkie or whatever. But also, hopefully it made people think, well, these people don't really want to be doing this. This isn't a, this isn't like, you know, a lot of hippies deciding to drop out and uh, take acid for, you know, for a summer. Well, you know, you know, Tom, Tom Murphy's character in the film says, why can't things be easy? I just want things to be easy. I, we, we, people often ask, you know, you know, what did you think? Why did they end up like that? Why did you, why did those, they end up, you know, one of the things that they, they did was they chose, they chose to fall through through the net in lots of ways. Like there is a, a an unofficial safety net there from their friends, their gang of friends that they've decided to 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 leave them to step away from. But also I I said to somebody that I, I said the reason that they ended up where they were is that when they were kids, when they were babies, nobody said, um, uh, I love you. You're a good boy. You're the best boy. Nobody said that to them. There's a lovely moment, though, where there's a little bit of that where they meet. I'm trying to remember now. It's been a while since I've seen it. When they meet their friends under the tree and she's got yeah. can, she's got cans. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember the actress that plays that part. Uh, she, well, but there's, she, there's uh, Deirdre Malloy and, and Mary Murray. Yeah, but they, they, she seems to be some sort of matriarch or motherly figure in yeah that's in, in, Deirdre Malloy yeah. she was a brilliant actress and she gives them a can and she gives them a joint but she gives them a can between the two of them which is <laughs> so, so <laughs> well, you'd take it wouldn't you but it was it just seemed like there was something almost religious about that moment wasn't there like the, the, that yeah. someone gave them sustenance or made them feel like because they knew them and they were friendly to them and they were kind of nice to them as well you know one of this says you know you they they, they practically grew up with us um, and uh, I think when you decide not to belong to 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 a, to a group or or from to a constituency that you're from, it puts you in real danger because you can fall. And you know, but I mean, you if if you're looking at rungs of ladders, and those those people under that tree that gave them a can, I don't even know if it was under a tree, but gave them the can and the joint. You know, if they're down here, Adam and Paul are 
below that you know the hierarchy of Adam and Paul then try and sit on a bench alongside a guy who's who's from Bulgaria or Romania and they try to tell him that he doesn't belong so everybody's looking for the person lower than them um, and, and and you mentioned Tom there briefly uh, mm. uh, brilliant and I noticed uh, I hope you don't mind me mentioning I noticed you mentioned yeah. on Twitter that it was his anniversary recently and yeah, um, six October he, he died in in 2007 so yeah uh, I mean Tom was a big influence on my life. Um, we were lovers for for a very long time. Um, we were we had split up by the time we were making the film, but we were still like just incredibly close. We always were, and uh, I I think it was during the breakup actually that I wrote the film. So this Tom's character there's lots of things like he gets knocked down by a moped or he gets a football in the face and all of that. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> I deliberately tell him on, on text messages, I just I just knocked you in the face with a football today. I hope you don't mind. Um, <laughs> and then when we were making it, like Lenny says, like the outtakes are kind of really funny because this this or or the vo the voice from the from the, the the audio that they picked up was it's lots of like well, what are you doing? Why, why didn't you just come over? And this is ongoing um, low level rumbling argument. But we loved each other, and uh, so when I lost him or when he died, I, like. It was just devastating. Like it, it took me like a very long time, a very long time to put myself together afterwards, like six years or I don't know. I stopped writing for a while. I didn't act for a while. I didn't do anything. Um, I was just completely like, fuck. And actually he died the day after Garage went to the cinema, which was, and Garage was this big thing because it had been in Cannes and blah, blah, blah. But when it was in Cannes, he was already sick. So like, I don't even look at Garage anymore because it feels like that time. Um, and uh, it was just a, it was just a weird one. Actually, there were funny things that happened. I went to visit him in the hospital once and uh, he'd had some bad news from a scan or something like that. And I used to really annoy him when I was there. So like, uh, but anyway, we were talking, he'd gone out for a cigarette and I'd gone with him. And then we were in the, the, the foyer of the hospital in Beaumont. And uh, he was sitting there and he told me that things weren't that well. And I started crying and then he started crying. And then this guy comes up to us and goes, it's fucking Adam and Paul. I don't believe it. Can I get a picture? And we were like, oh God, this is too weird. So he took, he took a picture and... Uh, <laughs> It was it was like a scene from the film, actually, where you put comedy and, and major tragedy alongside each other. But he said to me, he said, uh, I went out to visit him one day and he said, bring health magazines. I want to look at naked men. <laughs> I want to look at those fitness magazines. So I was like, OK, cool. And uh, and he was getting a chemo and he was lying. He was sitting on a chair, upright on a chair, and he was getting the chemo put into him. And uh, he was like, you know, you're really annoying me by being here. Why don't you go off on the Camino Frances? and I'll be better when you come back. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went off, I, I, two weeks later, I was on the Camino and I walked across Northern Spain, the whole way from inside the French border all the way to the sea. And uh, and we texted each other the whole way across. His father died while I was halfway there. So we talked a lot on the phone. And, uh, and then about a day before I got to Santiago, I got this really late, I, I sent him a message saying, tomorrow I walk into Santiago. And uh, he sent me this message saying, keep going, brave pilgrim, which wasn't him being serious or was it being being serious? It was a joke, you know, we would, you know, and I was like, oh, cheers. 
And I walked into Santiago that day and I tried to ring him and I couldn't get hold of him. I couldn't get hold of him the next day. I continued on to Finisterre. I rang a friend of mine who was very close with him. And she said, look, he's not well at the moment. You know, like he's really not well. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm coming home tomorrow. And she says, okay, we'll talk tomorrow when you get home. When I got home, he was already in a coma and he was dead a week later. So just, it was just the whole thing was just upside down. You know? Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just nice to talk to him and or talk about him and, and to let Yeah, to, I mean, to, I talk to, about to, him all the time. Like, I think about him all the time. I, I had a brother, my older brother, when I was 20, my older brother, oh, I was 21. My older brother died and he was 23, just nearly 24, maybe. And he died of the same disease, this non- uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and three weeks later I met Tom Murphy and we became a, a couple and then right at the end of that Tom Murphy dies of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and didn't want to tell me at the time that he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because he thought it would upset me because his brother had had it or my, bro- my brother had died of it so I was like just everything you know sometimes when you're in a really painful place you start finding symbolisms and things that's not at all helpful <laughs> You start to go, oh, God, that means that. Or, you know, you try. Anyone, anyone, anyone that you get close to gets gets that disease. That's what you that's what you're thinking. You that's know? it. Or, you know, was all my there fault. some connection to me? Was I like I this weird it was and these two boys who were, you know, my brother was 23. He was a lovely, lovely fella. Like I think of him every day. And, my, and then Tom, who was 39 when he died, I, I jokingly said he'd do anything rather than reach 40. But um, <laughs> and he was gone. And I think of him every day. And these were people that I thought I was going to grow old with, you know. Um, yeah. So the, after all of that, it was a very, very strange time. Well, I'm glad that you found your way back into writing. And, and I suppose it was, <laughs> it was inevitable. And uh, I just think... Uh, I think Rialto is brilliant and uh, delighted that you agreed to talk to me. And I hope you get to celebrate your two awards at some stage because, I mean, to get to get two awards, you know, for your, I mean, the virtues, we, I, I won't even start talking about the virtues because, but that was amazing as well. And uh, so many Irish people involved in that as well. Uh, but uh, Rialto, uh, to get two awards for performance and for writing is, uh, I'm yeah, not sure how many people have done that, you know. I don't know. You'd often hear of maybe a director being a writer as well. There's not so many writers and actors who are doing the two things independent of each other, you know? So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm chuffed. It's nice I'm to get just... a gone every so often. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> it would have been nice to say, what would you have done if you, like, would you have gone out? Would you have had a drink? Would you have stayed up too late? Would you, or would you? Well, I don't drink, you know, as a general rule. Uh, um, I haven't drunk for a long time. I, like, at Christmas time, I'd have a little sherry or a glass of wine, um, <laughs> but I generally try and avoid it. Uh, so I wouldn't have really gone out. Uh, the last time I had been nominated for an IFTA was uh, 2017 for this film that I made over in the Netherlands. And my mother came with me. So I brought my mother to the IFTAs. Um, so probably we'd have done that again if that was going to be the way it was, you know. Um, but... It's kind of, it's an odd, you know, these ceremonies can be a bit odd and boring as well at the same time. So it was kind of nice to be just sitting in your room and, and you were given a time slot to, to log into the Zoom. <laughs> yeah, well, much better. Yeah, because you're not sitting around, waiting around, hanging around, 
uh, that's why people drink at these things because they just can't stand the boredom. But the but it was lovely because Tom won an award and he was on the sofa with his family. You were in your your carefully manicured uh, <laughs> office space there, and it was it was probably nicer than watching. You know, you got you got to see people. It's very nice. You know, I the 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 the, the, the what you call it, the the writing one I'd gotten early on. And so I had time to make my dinner and eat it and sit on the, on the couch and watch the news. And then I knew I had to log in at a certain time. I logged in. I won that one. Went back to the couch. It was perfect. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> perfect. They'll never have award ceremonies in, 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 in person in, uh, anymore. That'll be it. I think this, that might be true, you know. I think or are we all just dying to get into a room together with each other? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. God knows what the hell would happen if we were allowed to touch each other. Jeepers. Wow. Let's not, let's not go there. Um, Listen, thanks a million, Mark. I really thanks for that. I hope it made some sense. I tend to waffle on sometimes. No, I loved it. It's I just I mean I keep saying to people I just I'm trying to get something out of this podcast. I'm not sure what, but it's just real conversation with real people and and for people to have I don't know how, whether you expect it to be here for fifty minutes, but for people that's to have right. have the space and the time to just talk, you know. And that's, so thanks very much. Have a good day. Thank you. Have a good one. Good luck. Cheers. See you. And thanks for Rialto. Good luck. Bye bye. Thank bye. you. Bye. Well, that's it. That is it for episode 16 of the Keith Walsh podcast. Thank you very much to Marco Halloran. I uh, really enjoyed chatting to him. Uh, lovely, lovely, lovely guy. Really sound, really down to earth and uh, a bit of a genius, if you ask me. Uh, some of my favorite films of all time, Garage, Adam and Paul and now Rialto. Um, just, uh, yeah, just brilliant. And hopefully I'll get to see, I've never seen Trade the play but um it'll be great to get to see that and i loved him in uh, the virtues and the virtues is brilliant as well if you um if you get a chance go see it seek it out on channel 4 places um anyway as i said if you want to watch rialto just go to the ifi website and uh, ifi at home you'll be able to download it there that's the crack that's all that's it that was it that's that was the chat um if you got anything from that if you felt anything from that and you want to get in touch and you want to have a chat and you want to you know share anything um please do feel free if if i can't help you i'll point you in the right direction um if you kind of maybe you've listened to that and thought you know what i'm not i need to deal with some shit here uh send me an email keith.watch at rte no it's not keith <laughs> you're not an rte anymore you're not on the radio now dude uh keith.watch here we go. Third time lucky. KeithWalsh.Walsh at gmail.com. KeithWalsh.Walsh at gmail.com or KeithWalshPod at gmail.com. They both come into the same uh, area, place, email place anyway. So that's the crack. Uh, as I said, if you if you want to share, uh, you want to reach out, you want to share your story, you want to share your story with other people, you want to just, you know, get in touch with me to tell me something or you want to bounce something off me or you want me to be your agony uncle and maybe try and help you with an issue get in touch absolutely i would love to hear from you i'm on social the social medias anyway uh, you can find me on instagram twitter and uh, you can send me a dance on tiktok or something either way uh do tell your friends about the podcast please rate it give it a five star rating i don't think i think the other ratings are broken you just have to give it five stars and uh, subscribe it's very important that you subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe um there you go that's the crack i have a very interesting chat uh with a young man from 
Well, he's living in Newbridge now, but he's from Nigeria. And there's some crazy stuff going on in Nigeria at the moment. So I had the interview recorded, and I'm seriously thinking about getting back in touch with him to see if he'd like to chat about what's happening in Nigeria at the moment as a little add-on. So we'll see about that. Uh, his name is JLOL. Uh, he's a, a singer, songwriter, rapper, artist. Uh, you can have a look for his stuff. Um, and uh, he's he's a very interesting guy, very, very interesting chat we had. So that's that's still to look forward to from the podcast. In the meantime, I gotta go. Signing off. This is Keith Walsh. Love love you all. Even though I don't I love you in a in a podcast way, you know, like you say I love you, but in a podcast way. Um and I'm just trying to sign off now because I have to get this done, edit it and up in the next five minutes, which I won't. Anyway, good luck. Bye. Just say goodbye. Goodbye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.